Sutra 20 Ignorance, egoism, attachment, hatred, and clinging to bodily life are the five obstacles or poisons. Now I know what some people are thinking. What's with the cats? Why not dogs? And so I'm here to answer that. Simply stated, cats are better protectors against snake attacks. One might say, well what does he mean by that? And so I ask, have you ever seen a cat fight back? Dogs are great, truly brave, just not against snakes, especially the invisible ones whose bites spread poison and alter fate. And if they latch on, they'll teach you a thing or two. A naga can push you into powerful transformation beyond what one could imagine the soul can go through. They'll push you so far until your skin turns blue. Blue? Why, I've seen Windhorse turn blue, and she had powers beyond what any living human could do. What were the powers, and how had they arrived? Why, I remember Windhorse turned a blackish blue right as I died. It does seem dark, doesn't it? But what about the beauty of our light? It's so pure and divine. And the only way to see it is to illuminate it through a process of living our life right. Right livelihood. Then you're good, said Windhorse. But I don't understand how the people of Earth manage to endure. Whenever a soul takes the first step into life, it seems we are surrounded by so much corruption and wars that I wonder if the majority of humanity is impure. What is it that you wish for? asked Windhorse. I wish there was more light. And since we find ourselves in such darkness, look for your North Star. Follow the light that those luminous teachers spread to get through the darkness. Then you'll get home no matter how far, said Windhorse. But how can we bear this situation? The debt of the material world is taking its toll, and I don't know who can endure this reality we've created. How is any of this even in our control? For those who find themselves in darkness, do not believe for a second that you have been abandoned or damned. Rather, we are well on the path to the pure and promised land. Within this world, there are forces of evil. But imagine if that wicked energy was transformed then all the chaos would be subjected to a purifying upheaval, said Windhorse. But how? How can this be done? There is a war in the world, and that war is within our heads, so how can this battle be won? Will you try an experiment with me? Simply close your eyes and allow your ears to hear all the sounds around you. Don't try to name or identify these sounds. Just hear them as if you would listen to music. And when you hear something, be it a bird, a flute, or guitar, go without asking what it means. We are going beyond the words, names, numbers, beliefs, and ideas to get back to the naked experience of reality itself. And at this level of awareness, we find no difference between the listener and the sound, the knower and the known, the subject and the object, or between the past the present and the future, said Windhorse.
once was Dublin town. The hallowed halls and houses, the haunting children's rhymes, that once was Dublin city in the red old times. Ring a ring a rosy, as the light it shines. I remember Dublin city in the red old times. It is Sean Dempsey, as Dublin as could be, raised hard and late in Pimlico, in a house that ceased to be. By trade I was a cooper, lost out to redundancy, like my house that fell to progress, my trade's a memory. And I courted Peggy Dignan. As pretty as you please, a roving child of Mary from the rebel liberty. I lost her to a student lad with skin as black as corn. So be careful. And took her off to Birmingham, she took away my soul. Ring a ring, ring a rosy, as the light shines. I remember that. I remember Dublin the city in the red old times. The years have made me bitter. The goggles dimmed my brain. For Dublin keeps on changing and nothing seems the same. The pillar and the metaphor, the royal long since pulled down. As the grey and yielding concrete makes the city of my town. Ring a ring a rosy as the light declines. I remember Dublin City in the rare of times. Fare thee well, sweet Anna Liffey. I can no longer stay and watch those new less cages that spring up along the quay. My mind's too full of memories. Too old to hear new chimes, I'm a part of what was Dublin in the red old oh, times. Bring a ring, a rosy, as the light declines. I remember Dublin city in the red old times. Ring a ring, a rosy, as the light declines. I remember Dublin City in the rare Come on, Frank. No sound was greater than the other, but together, sound holds great power. No sound is separate, and so all vibrations are of one pack. Forever. But how can we rectify this world, if it feels so broken? Of course, whispers pass about the power of the collective heart. That's why we've got to break the brass door open, said Forgiveness. And what were you thinking about cats? He asked. Yes, snakes don't seem to mess with cats. They're just too quick. Plus, Mr. Kismet and Forgiveness had a reaction so sharp, no snake could risk it. Because snakes are much like humans. Some are good, and some are bad. Snakes get pissed when hurricanes come through, just like humans. That means a snake can
can also feel emotions between happy and sad. I think the idea I was onto was about pairing up with a good pack, a set of guardians who've really got your back, and maybe even a snake bite could help if it gets a soul back on track. Plus cats have nine lives. It's good to know how to die, said Mr. Kismet. Maybe it is them behind the rhymes. So here we are, journeying from birth to death in life. So how can we use this force to its fullest, so that both this life and our death are meaningful? Amidst the fleeting clouds of illusion, dance the lightning flashes of life. Could you say that tomorrow you will not be dead? So practice today. To practice means not only to meditate, train the mind, do yoga, pray, and contemplate the teachings, but also to apply our understanding in daily life. The true cause of our unhappiness is not outside, but inside. Our propensities and negative emotions are what ruin our days, not our supervisor or our nemesis. As taught again and again, we should be aware of the poisons or the clashes, said Windhorse. Clashes? Yes, a clasha is a poison or a mental state that clouds the mind in unwholesome ways, said Windhorse. So this is why we should practice. Before going any further describing the journey after death and the experience in between, I think we should take time and speak from the heart about how to work with our mind, emotions, and our propensities. Why is that? It's because how we work with our mind, emotions, and propensities while journeying through the ups and downs of this life is what we take with us when we travel forward, said Windhorse. But what is it that goes after death? Some say that you take nothing with you, but when it comes to our state of mind and our emotional patterns, we do take them with us, said Windhorse. And just as our thoughts and emotions create our experience of the world right now, in the same way, and even more intensely, they create the environment we find ourselves in after death. If you want to experience heaven, work with your thoughts and emotions. If you want to avoid hell, work with your thoughts and emotions. It's like that, said forgiveness. So there is something that goes beyond death. All your bad habits which is your state of mind. When we do something once, we're likely to do it again. When we react to a situation a certain way, we're likely to react the same way next time that situation comes up. This is how propensities develop. As a result, we usually behave and react predictable. In some ways we're generous, in other ways we're self-protective, in some ways we're tolerant, in some ways we're irritable in some confident, in others insecure. And every time we react in our habitual ways, we strengthen our propensities. This is similar to the findings in neuroscience that show how pathways in our brain get reinforced by our habitual actions and thinking patterns. Not only do our propensities disturb us internally, but they also manifest as difficult outer situations. Some people always have a problem with their boss. No matter how many times they change jobs, they find themselves in the same uncomfortable situations. Some people have problems with intimacy in relationships. No matter who they date, their intimacy issues persist. The actors change, the movie sets change, 
but the basic drama remains the same. This is because our propensities are the authors of the script. Another thing about propensities is that they don't stop by themselves. We have to recognize them when they arise and not be so predictable. Over and over, we have to find our way to do something different. If not, they will follow us the rest of our lives. We can go even further and say they'll follow us beyond this life. Now the other side of the coin is that because of our strong interconnected relationships between our mind and our world, we will often find that changing our mental and emotional habits has a powerful effect on our outer experience. It seems like a miracle, but it's quite simple and straightforward when you think about it. If you work with your propensity to get jealous, it will seem like there are fewer and fewer people to envy. If you work with your anger, people won't make you so mad. So how do we take care of our propensities? We get to know them with kindness and intelligence. We acknowledge how powerful they are, but we don't make them the enemy. They are beautiful monsters, and we must treat them with tenderness, not acting them out or oppressing them, but making friends with them just as they are. Then when a person or an event triggers our painful emotions, we can distinguish between the trigger and the propensity. We can ask ourselves openly and objectively as possible, what is the main cause of my suffering? Is it them or is it within me? Said Windhorse. Then what should we do? Feel what you feel. Said Windhorse. So is death an enemy or a friend? That, my dear, depends. The Dharma tells us that all our experiences of discomfort, anxiety, being disturbed, and being bothered are rooted in our kleshas, or poisons. This Sanskrit term means destructive emotions, or pain-causing emotions. Ignorance, egoism, attachment, hatred, and clinging to bodily life are the five poisons, or kleshas. Craving becomes a destructive emotion when it gets to the point of being addiction or an obsession. Aggression is the opposite. We want to get rid of something that we perceive as a threat to our well-being. Ignorance as a destructive emotion is harder to understand. It's a dull, indifferent state of mind that actually contains a deep level of pain. It can express itself as being out of touch, being mentally lethargic, not caring what we're feeling or what others are going through. When this state of mind dominates us, it can turn into depression. These kleshas, or poisons, kill our happiness. This happens in two ways. First, we suffer while experiencing anger, addiction, depression, jealousy, and the rest. Then we continue to suffer as a result of the harmful actions they provoke. But it is not the emotions themselves that make us suffer. In their raw form, before we start to struggle with them, and before our thinking process gets involved, they are just sensations or forms of energy. They are not intrinsically bad or good. This is important to remember. The destructive aspect of aggression is not the sensation. It's our rejection of the sensation, and what we then do is a response. The culprit isn't the basic energy, but the spin-off. When Klesha energy arises, we tend to react in one of a few ways. One is to act out, either physically or with our words. Another is to suppress the emotion, to go numb around it. 
This may involve diverting our attention elsewhere, maybe by zoning out. A third common reaction is to get mentally wrapped up in some kind of storyline, one that often involves blame. All these reactions are based on not being able to bear the discomfort of this energy. We have a propensity to be bothered by the energy, so we try to escape our discomfort by getting rid of what's causing it. This approach is similar to that of the tyrant who kills the messenger bringing bad news instead of relating to the message. When we indulge in any of these reactions, we only strengthen our pain-causing habits that perpetuate our misery in the long run. Everyone has these habits. There's no need to blame ourselves or anyone else for this process, said Windhorse. But how can we clear these glaciers? How do we go beyond them? The first step in every method of working with emotions is simply to recognize what's happening. One of the characteristics of the glaciers or poisons is that they tend to go undetected. We only notice them when they've become full-blown. We're unaware of the emotion while it's just an ember. By the time we smell the burning or feel the fire's heat, it's too late. We've stuck out in word or actions or we're already on a binge. Having a regular meditation or yoga practice makes us more aware of what's happening in our mind and the mental undercurrents that tend to go unnoticed when we're caught up in our daily activities and interactions. With meditation, we begin to catch some of the ember-like thoughts and subtle emotions. Once we've become conscious of the glacier, the next step is to let ourselves feel it, to feel what we're feeling. It sounds very simple, but for many people, this is quite challenging. Some people have difficulty because they've been traumatized. Others have certain emotions that they just don't want to face. But as the teachers say, feel what you're feeling is a practice. There are ways to train the mind to make gradual progress, said Windhorse. So, where do we start? First start with the physical sensations, because they're relatively straightforward and provide a good access point. How do you feel physically? When we're out of touch with our body, our glaciers have a great opportunity to run rampant. On the other hand, when we're present and embodied, it's easier to be in touch with our mind. So notice how your body is feeling, the aches and pains and itches, the sensations of heat and cold, the places where you feel tight or relaxed. Then look at your state of mind. Is it discursive or settled? What kind of mood are you in? What emotions do you notice? Here it's very important to have an attitude of curiosity and openness rather than judgment. Different things can come up when we allow ourselves to feel what we feel. We may have painful memories or intense unpleasant emotions. That's to be expected and is no problem. But don't push too hard and make this into an endurance trial. The training should take place in an atmosphere of acceptance to grow in the ability to know what to do when emotions grab you. It's helpful to remember three words, embodied, present, and kind. Drop into your body, bring your attention to where you are right now, and be kind. When there's an upsurge of emotion, this may help you de-escalate. The main instruction is to stay conscious. You have to be willing to feel some discomfort. I've discovered, over time, that whenever I've allowed myself to feel what I feel, 
I become more patient with myself and more forgiving. And here's the thing, while glaciers cause pain, the glacier energy itself is a limitless source of relative power, like an electric current. It's not something you want to get rid of. The trick is to stay present with that energy without acting out or repressing it. By doing this, or learning how to do this, you might find out something remarkable. In the basic energy of the glaciers, we find wisdom, ungraspable, egoless wisdom, free of grasping and fixation. Transcend the emotions and go toward the light, said Windhorse. But how is this accomplished? How is it done? Practice the Dharma. To practice the Dharma means not only to meditate and contemplate the teachings, but also to apply our understanding in daily life. These teachings and sutras are instructions on what causes our dissatisfaction and pain, and how to become free of suffering. Remember, the true cause of our unhappiness is not outside, but inside. Our propensities and negative emotions are what ruin our days, not our supervisors or nemesis. Then what's the answer? Sometimes I feel like I'm locked and cannot get free. Would you like a key? Asked Windhorse. Of course, of course. There are three main methods for working with our clashes, and there are three steps to courage. First is refraining from reacting. This is based on the sense that there is something negative about the emotions. So we should do whatever we can to avoid making things worse. With the second method, we transform the klesha into love and compassion. We adopt a positive view of the emotions. If we use them in the right way, they will bring benefit rather than harm. The third method is using the emotion as a direct path of awakening. Here we transcend the duality of good and bad and let the emotions be just as they are. Now I found that refraining from reacting can be very unpopular. Instead of barreling ahead and reverting to old patterns of blaming or judging or otherwise avoiding what we're feeling, we allow space. We halt. We slow down the reactivity. Often when I teach the practice of refraining, people sometimes are unsure if I'm encouraging them to hide or run away from their problems. But the point of keeping our mouth shut isn't to duck out of heated situations. The point is to give ourselves the time and support to feel what we feel and interrupt the storyline. How we look at things makes all the difference. If we approach refraining as a means of shutting down, it can easily turn into that. But if we approach it as a way of opening up and become more allowing of whatever arises, then this practice will serve us as well. This space we create from refraining is a mindful gap it's as if we step back and become more present and awake to what's happening. The energy of the glaciers can be very intense. So I think of refraining from speaking and acting as becoming familiar with the transformative energy of our emotions. This takes practice and time. It's like getting to know an old friend at a deeper level. Our friend's energy challenges us, and yet we stick with them through thick and thin. To make it easier to relax with powerful glacier energy, it can be helpful to view it as a process of purifying habitual patterns, of purifying old, unhelpful karma. Since our mind tends to get stuck in repetitive patterns easily, 
We usually react to new experiences in the same predictable way that we always have. We reinforce old habits by repeating them over and over. But if we allow that mindful gap, we won't react in the usual way and can allow the experience to pass through us. This weakens our habit. My experience is that by allowing a space before we react is magical. It's often unthinkably frightening to experience what goes on inside you. But if we wish to become free, we have no choice, said Windhorse. So that's the first step. And what about the second? After we create a mindful gap from refraining, we then take things a step further. We use our thoughts intentionally to give the klesha, or poison, a positive direction. We do this by using the pain of our emotions to connect with others. Whatever is stirring up our heart is stirring up the hearts of countless others. Many are disturbed by their emotions, caught in their storylines, becoming triggered and reacting in destructive ways. And this confusion, anxiety, and distress is happening in many ways. Yet it is never just one person's pain. Anything we feel is shared by all. When you touch anger, you know the anger of all beings. When you touch grasping of insatiable wanting, you know the craving of all beings. All feelings are universal, felt by all of us. We all came here on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. Most of the time, when we feel confused, anxious, or stressed, we get wrapped up in our own discomfort, which cuts us off from others. In this way, everyone now and through the course of time is exactly like ourselves. We all want to be free from any form of pain. We all want to enjoy our time on earth and not experience it as a burden. The teachings on transformation suggest that we use our emotional pain as a stepping stone to open our heart to others. Without experiencing suffering for ourselves, we only have an abstract idea of what others are going through. So when we feel the tug of craving, the burn of anger, the checked out quality of ignorance, instead of resenting these emotions, we can appreciate them for giving us insight into the experience of others. They can help us develop empathy with all humanity. Thus, these keys use the poisons to be transformed into the seed of virtue. This is called reframing, or it could be called alchemy. For instance, if you feel jealous, we find the gap of spaciousness. Then we can reframe our minds to be curious about this feeling and ask, why are we feeling jealous? Do I need to feel jealous? What if this situation I feel jealous about is out of my control? Can I control my own emotions in this moment? If we feel jealous about a person, what if we contemplate the suffering that they have gone through? Having empathy and tenderness for others is based on having empathy and tenderness for ourselves. To the degree that we can feel, to that degree, we will be able to know firsthand what others feel. How can we really know what others are going through and feel tenderness toward them if we haven't felt these things ourselves and developed tenderness for our own sorrows? An important step in transforming poisons into seeds of virtue is to get in touch with a sense of warm-heartedness towards ourselves. Imagine that from this point on, 
you are going to accept yourself and all of your propensities, your shortcomings, the whole package, said Windhorse. Are there any practices that can help us prepare for this? Two practices for transforming the heart. To develop the courage to feel what we feel, this is called compassionate abiding. In the practice of compassionate abiding, instead of pushing a feeling away, we open our heart to the feeling of the poison. Not only do we allow ourselves to feel it, we go as far as to welcome it. We breathe it in generously, as we would breathe in clean country air. Compassionate abiding has the potential to change our whole relationship with jealousy or any other emotion. We practice this by breathing. On the in-breath, we open to the feelings as if opening our arms to a loved one. On the out-breath, we give the feelings limitless space as if sending them into the vast blue sky. In addition to breathing in a difficult emotion, we can use it to contemplate our sameness with others. Based on this, we can do the practice of Tong Lin, the practice of sending and taking. In Tong Lin, we take things even further by breathing in not only our own discomfort, but also the discomfort of others. If we're feeling rage, we can think about how many other people are feeling rage too. Our rage is no different from anyone else's rage. So when we breathe in our own rage, we can imagine that we're also breathing in the rage of all people around the world. Then we may begin to set an intention and say, May all beings be free of suffering and its causes. May all beings awaken to their true nature. As a natural complement to breathing in emotional pain, when we breathe out, we can send others whatever positive emotions and qualities we think would bring them joy and relief, such as love or confidence, health or relaxation. The sending part of Tonglin is a way of sharing our happiness and good fortune with others, all of whom have the same wish to be happy and fortunate too. Through the practice of sending and taking, using the natural alternation of our breath as a medium, we can transform any disturbing emotions into a seed of virtue, a seed of love and compassion. As we gain experience by applying this practice to different feelings and in different situations, we will feel less threatened by our emotional pain. In this way, the poison of our glaciers becomes a precious resource for us to help awaken the compassionate heart of wakefulness, which is the longing to remove the suffering of other beings and to do what it takes to pull that off," said Windhorse. Then the first step is refraining from the poisons of ignorance, egoism, attachment, hatred, and clinging to bodily life by creating a spacious gap. Then the second step is the transformation of reframing our mind or story. Then what's the third step? The third method of working with our emotions is the third step to courage, which is to use these poisons as a path of awakening. The idea is to allow ourselves to experience the energy of the poisons fully and directly. In doing so, we discover that these emotions contain all the wisdom we need to wake up. An unshakable confidence comes from this experience, a confidence that brings fearlessness in life and in death. When we come into this world, we may believe we have some kind of stable identity 
Something that makes me, me. Something separate from the rest. Based on this misunderstanding, we find ourselves constantly getting hooked by the myriad pleasures and pains the world has to offer. Our minds get completely wrapped up in the poisons and all the troubles that go along with them. The teachings say that this painful process will continue until we wake up from our unawareness completely, until we see ourselves and all phenomena as they really are, fleeting, insubstantial, and wide open with possibility, never separate from the basic ground, never separate from the cosmic source. Wherever there is confusion, there's also wisdom, co-emergent wisdom. In essence, this source of potential, the power of rage can be transformed, the jealousy can be shifted, and our egoism can be adjusted to a space where we serve others. It is up to us to transform these feelings by working with them. But if we don't, they can ruin our state of mind and harm not only us, but the people around us. This is why we must learn to work with our emotions. Using our emotions as a path of awakening is based on simply letting the emotion be, just as it is. On the other hand, the ego feels at home when it's meddling or trying to fix things. This is where the first step comes in. We reframe and create a spacious gap to see clearly. Having a spacious gap, we let ourselves experience the emotion as fully as possible. When we go beyond our propensity to be bothered by craving, when we come to experience it as a form of wakeful energy, then the emotion loses its power to disturb us. Instead, it becomes something precious, pure potential to be transformed. By relating to our emotions in this way, we discover their enlightened aspect. That wisdom is co-emergent with ignorance and confusion. This isn't easy, but it's quite simple. It takes practice to contact the wisdom within any poisons. But once we contact the wisdom, we cure the dis-ease. Then we simply find ease and relax, said Windhorse. And these glaciers, these are poisons we slip into? Can you break them down so we can understand how to best transform them? First, ignorance is the field for others mentioned after it. Whether the poisons may be dormant, feeble, intercepted, or sustained. If we examine a baby, the baby's obstacles are completely dormant. When you see a baby, you feel, how innocent is it? But as the baby matures, the inborn disposition will emerge. It will not remain innocent. Ignorance and the other obstacles dormant in the mind will come to the surface in proper time. The mind of an advanced yogi is an example of the second type, the feeble or weakened stage. Such a person is not completely free of the poisons we call glaciers, but they are there in his or her mind, in a very subtle trace form. They have sunk to the bottom of the mental lake, and out of not being used, have become very weak. The third state of intercepted development is seen in the mind of a beginner. The obstacles are temporarily pushed down by the constant practice of virtuous qualities, such as love, truthfulness, discipline, cheerfulness, etc. If such a seeker is not careful to cultivate these qualities, even for a few days, 
the obstacles will immediately come to the surface. The fourth type is seen in the case of average people. The glaciers constantly manifest. Every minute their minds are affected by these obstructions. They have no say over them because they are not exerting any force to control them. By analyzing our minds, we can probably see, do I have completely dormant glaciers? Do traces of these poisons remain, but are buried? Am I controlling them by the cultivation of good qualities, or am I completely ruled by them?" said Windhorse. Can you explain what ignorance really is at its root? Ignorance regards the impermanent as permanent, the impure as pure, the painful as pleasant, and the non-self as the higher self. If I show you a nice piece of fruit that you have never seen before, you will say, I am completely ignorant of this. I don't know what that is. This is normal ignorance, not knowing something. But let's examine what is higher self and what is non-self. The higher self is eternal, the never-changing one. It is always everywhere as the very basic substance. All things are actually nothing but the higher self, but in our ignorance, we see them as different objects. Thus, we take the changing appearance to be the unchanging truth. When something changes, we may think it can't be the higher self. For example, our own bodies are changing every second, yet we take the body to be our higher self. And when we say, I am hungry, or I am physically challenged, or I am black, or I am white. These are just the conditions and the qualities of the body. We touch the truth when we say that the body belongs to us, and that therefore we are not that. Unfortunately, the body is not you. You are a spiritual being, or soul, who is having a human experience. Whenever we forget this truth, we are involved in the non-self, the basic ignorance. We make the same ignorant mistake in regard to the mind, saying, I am happy, or I am ignorant. Feeling happy, fearful, or angry, or knowing a lot, or knowing nothing, are all modifications or feelings of the mind. Once that is understood, there is nothing that can disturb us in the world. One good story of this is about a time when a man was walking during twilight. All of a sudden, in a dark corner, he saw something coiled like a snake. Frightened, he yelled, Snake! Snake! His voice roused a number of people who came running with sticks. They advanced around the corner before the man poked the coil, but nothing happened. When someone brought a lantern near, it was revealed that it was nothing but a coiled rope. The one holding the lantern laughed. In order to understand the rope as a rope, a light was necessary. We too need a light, the wisdom of Yana. With such a light, the world is no longer a world of all the qualities we call the non-self, and so it appears in its true nature. In this example, it is also good to consider that twilight is the most dangerous time, because in total darkness, neither a rope nor a snake could be seen. In broad daylight, the rope would be obvious. Only in dull light could a man mistake the rope for a snake," said Windhorse. So how can one bring forth that light in the darkness? The light appears 
when we open our higher self to the true nature of reality. Another obstruction of this, or poison, is the ego. Egoism is the identification of the power of the seer, which is the true soul with that of the instrument of the body-mind. The ego is the reflection of the true self on the mind. The two appear to be the same, but one is the original, the other is a reflected duplicate. The true self will always be falsely represented by the ego until our ignorance is removed. The ego would believe that the soul is theirs, while the higher self knows the soul is ours. The ego would believe that we could be a king over the whole world, while our higher self knows that our soul is king over the ego. The ego would believe that one individual could rule the world, but our soul knows that the universe rules over us. The ego believes we can live forever, but only the soul actually does. It is by the fact that there is an ego that we arrive at egolessness. The ego teaches us egolessness. The ego clings, grasps, attacks, and claims things as its own, while the true self simply lets go. By letting go, everything is accomplished, since the higher self is always at home. The ego is always trying to get better, get stronger, and get more for itself, since it is concerned with what it owns," said Windhorse. And can you speak about attachment? Attachment is that which follows some identification with pleasurable experiences. We don't want to let go of this pleasure or this feeling, and so we cling and hold on. On the other hand, aversion is that which follows identification with painful experiences. Attachment to pleasure is another pain-bearing obstacle. When we have a feeling of joy, pleasure, or something enjoyable, we have a tendency to feel pulled to hang on and cling. Then when the feeling slips away, we experience suffering because we are not content with letting go. By seeking control, we suffer rather than being open to what is. We attach ourselves to pleasure because we expect happiness from it, forgetting that happiness is always within the true self. When we expect joy from outside things, we become attached to those things. If we find these things make us unhappy, we create aversion toward them. So these symbolize our likes and dislikes, but they're impediments on the spiritual path. Happiness seems to be the basic need of everything in the world, yet rarely does anybody find it. Why? Because happiness is like the musk deer. The ancient scriptures have a fable about this animal, which has a scented spot above its forehead that gives off the musk fragrance. This deer runs here and there in search of the scent, not knowing that the scent comes from its own forehead. Just like that, happiness is already in us. Wherever we go, we reflect our happiness onto people and things. When we see a smiling face and feel happy, it is because the smiling face reflects our happiness. Just as a pure, clean mirror reflects our face beautifully, certain pure, clean faces reflect our happiness. Then we say, this person gives me happiness. In other faces, our happiness reflects in a distorted way, and we say, I don't like that person, 
But it's nonsense. No one can either give us happiness or unhappiness, but can only reflect or distort our own inner happiness," said Windhorse. So what is this clinging to outcomes and feelings? What happens as a result? Clinging to life, flowing by its own potency, due to past experience, exists even in the wise. The next obstacle is clinging to life itself. Here we get a clue into the nature of rebirth. Many Westerners don't believe in reincarnation. They might feel that it's all over once we die. But yoga philosophy reminds us that all our knowledge comes through experience. Without experience, we cannot understand or learn anything. Even books can only remind us of something we have experienced in the past. They help kindle a fire that is already within us. That fire must be there first for the kindling stick to kindle it. Examine instinct. It's a trace of an old experience or impression. Instincts are passed through families, through the mind, through generations, and although they may go down, they aren't completely erased. These are habits, and if we continue them, they become our character. Continue with that character, and eventually, perhaps, it comes up in another life as instinct. In the same way, all of our instincts were once experiences. That's why the fear of death exists. We have died hundreds and thousands of times. We know well the pang of death. And so the moment we get a body, we love it so much that we are afraid to leave it and go forward because we have a sentimental attachment to it. Many people do not realize that we are a soul. And so they cling to the body even when it gets old and dilapidated. That constant clinging, breaking away, clinging again, breaking away, is why we are mortally afraid of death. It is another klesha, or poison, based on ignorance of our true nature. So all these poisons, whether dormant, feeble, intercepted, or sustained, should slowly be gotten rid of. Only then are we ready to go further, said Windhorse.